My name is Scott Wham, and I'm the Director of Compliance and Innovation here at One Digital. I'm really excited for today's episode. Uh, we're going to be talking about a really interesting topic with one of my colleagues out on the West Coast, Cassie Schlarb. Cassie, uh, would you mind taking a second and just introducing yourself to the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, Scott. So, like you said, I'm from the West Coast. I am our Regional Director of Analytics out here in California. Um, I run our analytics team for any of our markets, Colorado to the Pacific Ocean. Uh, my team is responsible for basically anything to do with numbers, right? So anything from doing a cost-benefit analysis to claims utilization to actually projecting out what our clients' costs will be for the upcoming year and making recommendations on risk uh, mitigation strategies for clients that are looking to bend that cost curve that we're seeing year over year. I've done everything from helping set up captives to actually helping run our local health plan. Um, and the topic today, reference-based pricing, is honestly one of my personal favorites. I am a huge proponent of it. It's really empowering, I think, to be able to understand what's driving costs and how you can actually impact the unit cost of, of healthcare. And actually, as a consumer, take that into your hands and be able to have a say on some of those bills that we get. Great. So the, just by way of a reminder to anybody who's joining the podcast, you know, the thought the thought behind the Moneyball Benefits podcast is that we want to try to teach employers how to develop the most competitive benefit strategy possible that can be used to attract and retain top talent as efficiently as possible. So Cassie was immediately top of mind to have on the podcast because, you know, when we talk about running a, a health plan efficiently, data is king and analytics are king. But where I want to start with our conversation today, Cassie, is, you know, we're in 2023. The past three years have been exceptionally challenging for employers. I'd even say that almost the past four years, if you factor in the pandemic. But now we're in this 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 period of time that's been uh, tip, that's been best characterized as being the highest inflation I've ever seen in my lifetime. I've ever gone through in my lifetime. You know, the average employee is getting hit at home out of their pocketbook when they go to the grocery store. Employers are trying to find every dollar possible. And when we look at the healthcare landscape and we look at the renewal season that we're about to enter um, for the January 1st cycle coming up here, going into 2024, how are things shaping up? I mean, what are, what are you and your team seeing when you look at the numbers and you're trying to prepare your clients? What what are you seeing out there? Um, as we enter into this to this busy season. Absolutely. So I would completely agree with you. The past three to four years have been unique. Right? So we have had the pandemic. and then on Unique top of is that, a way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Have, <laughs> we've had this pandemic and then all the ramifications of the pandemic, not just, you know, in terms of the health impact it's had on people, but also the economic impact of having our entire world shut down for months on end. So what we're seeing right now in terms of healthcare spend is first off, healthcare landscape, so hospitals, medical groups, they were not immune to these pressures, right? So they've had the same things everyone else has had. They've had labor shortages, so shortages in registered nurses, physicians. Um, you're seeing a lot of, of these large healthcare systems start to monopolize and grow vertically. So they're purchasing these, uh, these physician-owned groups. They're purchasing these ambulatory surgery centers and making it really hard for independent physicians to be able to compete and to come in. Um, so we're seeing more and more uh, physicians not coming into the market, especially primary care. We're not seeing as much primary care enter the market. Mental health 
has been, we've continued to see a shortage there. Um, we're seeing costs in general tied to inflation. So the cost of everything has gone up. So the cost of anything in a hospital has gone up from your supplies to the equipment um, and maintaining that equipment, as well as, you know, we're seeing more and more administrative burden tied to government regulations. So we know we have the Transparency Act. We know that we're asking hospitals and insurance carriers to provide more data. Well, someone has to collect that data. They have to keep it updated. They have to post it up on these websites. And that that costs money, right, to be able to give manpower to do things like that. Um, and one thing that the hospitals expected to see and didn't was a um, some revenue from deferred procedures uh, that people didn't get during the pandemic. So we knew that the hospitals were shut down. We knew that no one was going to the doctors and we expected they would come back. Well, some did, but some didn't. So people who were may maybe would have gotten a back surgery, a knee surgery, some sort of elective procedure to maybe help a lifestyle um, condition, either didn't go and get the surgery or they made lifestyle changes versus getting something like a surgery that ultimately cured the condition. So because of that, Hospitals are short on revenue. Most hospitals are operating at a loss and they're now looking to recoup those losses. And the thing with how hospitals get paid from private insurers is that they get paid through their contracts with the major insurance carriers. But those contracts are three to five years long. So if a hospital had entered into a contract right at or before the pandemic, they have had to shoulder these losses during this entire period. So now they're coming back as they enter the negotiations with these carriers saying, hey, listen, we need to make up for these operating losses. And they're coming and asking for anywhere from 10 to 30 percent more from the insurance carriers, which ultimately get passed right back down to the employers and employees. So that's that's one thing we're seeing in terms of of cost. The other is just the medical utilization impact. So we're seeing you know, the impact of COVID in general. Right. So we have long COVID. We have people who still have health costs. Um, COVID testing's here to stay. Vaccinations are here to stay. That's a cost that's brand new. And then we're also seeing the impact of people not going to the doctors in terms of delayed detection of certain disease states like cancer. Um, a lot of late stage cancer, which obviously the later you catch cancer, the more aggressive the treatment needs to be. And then we're also seeing a drop in compliance of people with their chronic conditions. So those are so, two things that are impacting costs. So, yeah, I mean, if I going to distill down uh, that excellent <laughs> overview of the pressures that, you know, we're encountering out in the market, it's that there's just a lot of variables that seem to all be coming to a head and conspiring against the efficient management of uh, an employer sponsored health plan um, yep. where where if employers are are asleep at the switch, they may bear the brunt of all of these cost pressures that are all coming to a head right at the same time. Uh, it almost feels like they're just piling on top of one another, one after the other. Um, we had an earlier podcast with Bob Simeone, who was on and gave the listeners a, a, a high level overview of the differences between fully insured health plans and self-funded health plans. So if anybody's listening to this episode who hasn't listened to that episode, I'd recommend going back and listening to that overview um, because I want to get into the weeds a little bit with Cassie on a specific type of strategy that applies to self-funded health plans um, called reference-based pricing. So uh, Cassie, you alluded to it you alluded to it earlier. Can you give the listeners just a, a high level overview of what is reference-based pricing and why is it an important concept to understand given all of these financial pressures that are conspiring to make life a little bit more challenging for an employer sponsored health plan? 
Absolutely. So high level, <laughs> um, the way currently that most people seek healthcare is through a network, right? So we all know the terms in network and out of network. You want to go in network. That's your best cost option. It's going to be the lowest cost option. Well, networks are simply contracts between the carrier and a provider where the carrier says, hey, I will pay you X amount, which is usually a discount off of the provider's charge master rate if you will see employees who are on this health plan. And what we will do is we will drive them to you provider out and not drive them to people who are not in this network. So you're essentially trading volume for a discount. And these discounts vary wildly. They can be 80% off the charge master rate, which is kind of a phantom number. There's really nothing that mass that charge master rate is based off of. There's no usual customary um, cadence, there's nothing that's governing that charge master rate. It can be whatever the hospital wants. So the discounts can be anywhere from 80% to 10%. And so the, real quick, time, the, the, the charge master, just to pause there for a second, I mean, to really under, it, it's super subjective. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like throwing a dart at a dartboard. You know, this is where we encounter the aspirin on the charge master cost I'll say $120 a, a pill or whatever, or gauze you know, with yep. a ridiculous charge master fee. So that's the arbitrary starting point in a negotiation with a carrier and a hospital system. Absolutely. Yep. So there's there's nothing that, that guides that outside of the hospitals trying to make X amount of profit with a carrier. So that's what those networks are. When you go in network, you're just agreeing to, they're just agreeing to pay that cost. What reference-based pricing does is it goes, okay, well, we know that we know what the, the U.S. government has agreed to pay these hospitals. We know what Medicare is. That's published, the CMS. We know that most hospitals make some sort of profit on it. They say that they don't, but they, they absolutely do. So we'll use that, that Medicare pricing as kind of our basis. And then from there, we will pay an additional percentage to just ensure the hospitals are getting, you know, a fair amount on top of that Medicare pricing. So it's usually anywhere from 25 to 90% above Medicare. So it seems pretty good, right? If you're paying 25 to 90% more than what Medicare is pricing, that should be a, a fair amount. Um, and that's how these health, uh, health plan that use reference-based pricing pays for healthcare services. Just to, put of, that, just to put that in perspective, you know, 25% to 90%, if if someone's just hearing this for the first time, might sound like a large number right. over Medicare, but what what is the what is the private market potentially paying through a carrier or how how large can that be above medic how large can that percentage be above medicare uh if you're if you're trusting an insurance carrier or, or, or going through the traditional channels for getting access to a hospital system so we typically see it be between three to four times medicare is usually what the private insurance carrier is paying so it's substantially wow. more right that's, and again, that's, that's substantially more. Yep. <laughs> substantially more than what Medicare is paying. And so that that's high level what reference-based pricing is, is instead of allowing the medical carriers to play this shell game with the providers on what these discounts are going to be off of this made-up charge master number, health plans are able to say, we will pay you 25 to 90% more than what Medicare is paying you for any procedure. And that goes to every single hospital. So no hospital is going to get paid more than another unless you as a employer decide, hey, I want everyone to go to this hospital, I'll pay you a little bit more, you know, to to see my my 
my employees, but you as the employer get to ultimately make that decision. You're not subject to these contracts that the carriers have negotiated. You're ultimately deciding what you think is a fair and reasonable price to pay healthcare. So if you are taking that much money off the table, right? If you're talking, mm-hmm. you know, two to four times, three to four times Medicare in the private market in the traditional negotiated channels where you're trusting a, a carrier to really set those prices and moving to a model that's 25% to 90%. I mean, it's potentially huge savings. What is the reaction from a hospital when you, this negotiation <laughs> starts? Or what what does this actually look like when a claim is filed and and there's no network, there's no contract governing that reimbursement rate? What happens at that point? So that's where if there is noise, it happens. Now, it doesn't always happen. So it really depends on the hospital. It depends on the claim, right? So if you went in there and someone was in the hospital for a month, you know, they the hospital is going to say, hey, listen, we need to make some money on this versus someone coming in for uh, outpatient surgery, right? Which they're normally going to upcharge anyways. They'll usually accept a lower payment. Um, so what happens is hospitals will either accept the payment and they won't pursue anything more. Or the hospital may say, hey, we don't have a contract with you that says we have to accept this as payment in full. Our charge master rate is whatever crazy number it is, two times, three times this number you're giving us. That's what we want from you employee. So they will balance bill the employee or they'll come after the health plan. And they'll say, this is what our charge master rate is. This is what you've agreed to pay us. Because a lot of times what happens, I don't know if any, you know, for anyone who's gone to the hospitals, they ask you to sign something that says, I agree to pay all charges if my health plan is not contracted with this hospital. So they will try to come after the employee or they'll try to come after the health plan. So what guardrails are in place with our partners that we work with who offer reference-based pricing administrative services. What type of guardrails are in place for that member and and to an extent that in, that plan sponsor as well, that employer as well? What type of guardrails and protections are in place if you encounter that that hospital system who says, you know what, I, I'm not accepting uh, 120% or 200% of Medicare. Um, I want the the gross charge master amount paid. Where does it go from there? Great question. So. Typically, all plans that have reference-based pricing will give the reference-based pricing vendor, so you you contract with a vendor who does the negotiations for your health plan, that allows them some discretion to negotiate to a higher level. So if maybe they paid the claim at 30% above Medicare, they can go up to two times Medicare, and they can come back to the hospital and give them a little bit more money um, in order to make that claim go away. And usually what we do is we make sure that you have that our stop loss carrier, so your protection for really large claims, has agreed to reimbursing for anything up into that that new ceiling. So we make sure everyone's protected. We give some discretionary authority to the reference-based pricing carrier to negotiate to a higher level. If for some reason that doesn't work, uh, most reference-based pricing vendors will have a legal component to it. So they will either contract with a legal firm or they will have lawyers on retainer that will then come in and begin to advocate for your employees or for the plan. So they will go after the um, 
the provider, um, if it's for an employee, they will put the charge in dispute. So with with credit laws, where they are right now, once a charge is, is in dispute, they can't continue to pursue further action. It won't show up on anyone's credit report. Um, or if it's for a plan, they'll just come in and they'll, they'll start negotiating um, for more. So so from an from a member perspective, if it gets to that point, you know, they're shielded. The member at that point is shielded from credit impact, from collections impact to an extent. And I guess the thought process, the thought process would be as soon as lawyers get involved, you're adding cost on the provider side as well. You're adding costs on the hospital side. So perhaps reasonable minds will will come together and and arrive at a number uh, that that makes sense before you have to take it to full litigation and go, you know, go to court and have your have your day. Right. And I would say in general, our administration, our, you know, society is recognizing that medical debt really shouldn't come against, really shouldn't be counted against consumers. So there was something that came out last year, the three major credit repairing bureaus, Experian, Transamerica, um, they came out and said, listen, we're going to do the following things when it comes to medical debt. First off, if it's under $500, we're not going to report it. So if you have a $200 bill that never gets paid, it actually will not show up on your credit report. If it's over that amount, it's going to take a year before it shows up on your credit report. So it's buying consumers time to pay for that because it's not most medical costs that people can't budget for are emergencies. So we've recognized that we shouldn't be penalizing people for an emergency, for not being able to have an emergency fund that can be, you know, up to $10,000, $20,000. That's a lot for the average American to be able to shoulder. Most people couldn't pay a $1,000 bill if it came up, if it came up through a medical emergency. So those two things came into play last year that already kind of protect the consumers anyways from action from hospitals if they're trying to pursue an egregious charge. So that already exists. But most of the time, what we find is once we bring a lawyer in and we're actually asking the providers to prove their charges, they can't prove that what they are charging people is reasonable. And you can't just ask people to pay you know, $500 for a diaper or whatever crazy charges that right, we see. You right. can't do that. You actually have to <laughs> prove that it's a reasonable charge. And most of these cases that have gone to court, and there have been some that have gone to court, have been either shot down in favor of the plan or the member, or the charge has been reduced to something like, you know, from $30,000 to $700 once they found out that's really what a reasonable additional payment would be. So we're finding that providers can't defend against these charges when it's actually pressed to them. They can't defend that what they're doing is reasonable. And a lot of times we're finding so many errors in the bill. Usually, I think it's 80% of most um, hospital bills contain one or more errors. So, um, I, I, I mean, we spend time, I spend time going down this this road of, of what happens when the, when the hospital disagrees with the bill, because you know, in my experience, I'm sure it's similar with you. This is what employers need to be prepared for and mm-hmm. really need to understand um, when it comes time to explain the plan to employees and to, and to get them up to speed. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that you're still talking about the vast majority of the time getting pricing that's much more in line with Medicare uh, than you would get in a traditional setup. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I think we typically find balance bill, the average percentage of overall claims that happen to balance bills that come in, it's like 
So 2% of the time you're going to get a balance bill. So it's really, really not a prevalent occurrence. It's something that occurs once in a while. Of course, it always occurs, you know, to the CFO's wife or some, you know, something that's a really right, big deal. Right. But it's not something that's going to be widespread. And most of the time, hospitals are going to accept, providers are going to accept the payment as is. So so um, one of the questions I get all the time is, is this an all or nothing play, right? If you're sponsoring a self-funded health plan, is does the whole health plan have to be a reference-based pricing model or or can a piece of the health plan be reference-based pricing? Can you give some insight into into what this looks like and what some of the strategies are from from building a from building a comprehensive health plan? We've seen a lot of evolution in this type of health plan in the past. I would say five to ten years that makes it so it doesn't have to be all or nothing play. So what we see is that there are some third party administrators out there who allow you to have a network, but allow you to carve out certain benefits that get paid at a percentage of Medicare. So things like dialysis or MRI scans or things that are usually high cost, maybe not very frequent, but they can be very high cost procedures when they do come up. Um, They'll carve those out from the health plan and allow those benefits to be paid in Medicare, but other things to be paid using the network. We've seen more and more health insurance carriers allow their networks to be rented out alongside a reference-based pricing plan so that when it comes time for open enrollment, employees can choose a reference-based pricing plan or a full network plan. Typically, what we recommend in that case is that you make the reference-based pricing plan lower cost because ultimately it will be a lower cost plan to the employer. So you want to share some of that savings. Um, And sometimes we even recommend making it richer because you can make it a richer plan because it's going to cost you less for people to utilize care on that plan. Um, But that works really well for groups just trying to introduce the concept to say, hey, listen, we've got an option for you if you're not a big for, you know, you're not a huge utilizer of healthcare. You really just want to make sure you have the plan for catastrophic risk. We've got this option for you. Um, or if you're someone who you're in the middle of health treatment, you're concerned about your treatment getting turned down or having to wait for approval from the hospital, here's a full network plan where you have ac- you know you have access to your provider. So those are two of the most common options that we, we've seen recently um, that have allowed employers to kind of dip their toe um, into this concept, see some of the savings, but not feel like they're disrupting their employees too too much. And usually what we see is that as you make the reference-based pricing plan more competitive, make it richer, you start to have migration, people become more interested in that plan. Um, and they can get really creative in that, that reference-based pricing plan in a way that you can't get with your uh, full network plan. Are you starting to see uh, any trend at the system level where a, a market might hit a critical mass with reference-based pricing to where that system comes to the table and says, you know what, we don't want to do the back and forth anymore. We just want to cut a better deal or we just want to, we want to come to the negotiating table and just say, let's, let's, let's cut a deal altogether. We have seen, so not so much with reference-based pricing as a concept, but we see it with larger groups. So if larger, a larger group that has maybe a very large employee population in one area that has a limited healthcare system, Hmm. um, they their employees may represent a significant amount percentage of um, patients for that hospital system. That hospital system is willing to come to the table and negotiate straight with that employer. 
So they may say, hey, listen, we are willing to directly contract with you, employer A, for um, to allow your employees to access our facilities. And then usually it's going to be more competitive than if we use the network contracts just because they don't want to lose those members. They don't want to have them go to outside hospital systems. They're willing to come to the table and take a cut in revenue in order to retain that patient volume. So, so Cassie, this has been a really helpful overview. And, and I think that we want to have more conversations with you and that, uh, you know, when we were prepping for this call, we talked about direct primary care. I definitely want to have a future episode where we dig into direct primary care because I know that's a big piece of your uh, strategy with reference-based pricing models. But if we were going to sum up the the pros and cons for employers and employees, I, I'm going to take a stab at it. Yep. And then you you, you tell me what I miss, you fill in any gaps I miss. Um, for an employer, the pros are you have the chance to save substantial dollars uh, going to a reference-based pricing model while potentially offering a, a richer plan design to employees. Um, the cons are uh, if you don't do a good job educating employees regarding the process and somebody gets sent to collections because the hospital's digging their heels in, there could be a chance, you know, it goes pretty far down a legal road. There is a chance that employees complain a bit. Um, to your point, can happen to the CFO's spouse, and you know, this, you know, when that happens, all heck can break loose. Um, but if positioned appropriately, uh, uh, you know, that 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 impact can be mitigated. There's also guardrails that come into play through the administrators that you work with that that provide that legal protection. But one of the other cons is if it doesn't work, you know, you might get hit with a with a with a charge master bill. If you can't substantiate the actual medical costs associated with that charge master bill, which uh, you know, based on the insight you provide, rarely ever happens. But if the, but if I was going to high level pros and cons, richer benefit, potentially way less expensive orders of magnitude less expensive. Con is potential employee disruption if it's not rolled out appropriately, prepared appropriately, set up appropriately with the chance uh, to, to experience uh, a higher level of litigation that, that could lead to added costs in a very slim minority of circumstances. Is that a fair summation from the employer's perspective? Is there is there anything I'm I'm missing there? I'm sure there is, but that was really good. I'd say the other thing on the pro is not only richer benefits, but benefits that work for your workforce. So you can really start customizing your plan to cover things that your employees want and not just something off the shelf that the carrier thinks is necessary. Um, you really begin to have that flexibility to build a health care plan, a health insurance plan that your employees value because you're cutting out a lot of waste. You're cutting out spending money on things that you shouldn't be spending money on, and you can start to invest instead on things that they want. So from the employee perspective, um, you know, one digital offers a reference-based pricing plan design. <laughs> and um, uh, when, you know, when I look at the the benefits every year, from the employee perspective, you know, 
it's always, I mean, the way we structure it is way less expensive. So monthly out-of-pocket costs are are less expensive if you're in the reference-based pricing model. You know, I remember when I was contributing to an HSA before I need back surgery this year, so I'm, I'm on my wife's plan now. <laughs> you're welcome, One Digital. So uh, uh, she's got a copay plan. It's like the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's from like the nine, it's from the early 1990s. But I was contributing to an HSA. You know, I'm looking at the cost differential between that base level plan and the buy-up plan. I wasn't really a high utilizer of healthcare outside of, you know, the run-of-the-mill primary care stuff that I would see throughout the year. And I'm, I'm taking money and putting that into an HSA to, to build some money there. Um, fairly inexpensive. Um, when I was in the plan, if there was a if there if there was a, a hiccup that I would encounter from time to time, it was, you know, the the physician didn't know what I had, right? I had to I had to spend a little bit of time explaining, you know, I'd show the card. I had to get some advocates involved from time to time. But generally speaking, fairly minor hiccups. In a circumstance where you incur a significant claim, the the downside could be that you get you'd start getting sent you know, medical demand notices, uh, collection notices for that medical debt. And if you're not trained and prepared, that can be somewhat of a scary experience. But the upside is there's no network, right? So I, I went generally to whomever I wanted to go see. Um, uh, you know, I, I Once everybody was comfortable with my card and that they were going to get paid an amount, you know, once they were <laughs> comfortable with it, it worked fairly well. It worked, worked pretty well. Um, uh, but again, I was able to save a lot of money out of my paycheck. The upside, downside I'm missing here. I mean, that was my general experience with with the plan design. I was really happy to have the experience because it, it ran more or less like every other insurance card I've ever had. Nope, I would I would 100% agree. And I would say I, I'm on that plan. Um, and this is probably my highest utilized year I've ever had in healthcare. You know, I'm pregnant. I uh, went to the ER for the first time this year, haven't gone in a long time, had to go um, due to a minor car accident. My daughter went to the ER for the first time in her entire life. She's 10 years old, hasn't gone to the ER until now. So I've actually used this plan more than I've ever used a health plan outside of maybe when I had my daughter 10 years ago. I was also on a copay plan. And to your point, there's been a little bit of hiccups, right? So having to explain, you know, hey, like this is what my health plan is, how it works, Um I, we do have a deductible, so I have to pay that deductible. So if the discounts aren't as strong because of the way that we're, uh, our insurance actually pays that first level or discounts that first level, I've kind of had to ad- advocate for myself to say, hey, you know, you're charging me this. I went online and I checked all of your charge master rates because you now have to post those according to the law. Um, and I could see that you're charging me more than you would charge someone without health insurance. So, I mean, I've had to go in and advocate for myself, but having that knowledge has been really empowering for me. So just kind of knowing that I'm not a slave, I'm not, you know, I don't have to just pay the bill. I don't just have to pay the first bill, Mm. which is a book. If anyone's ever interested, uh, don't pay the first bill. Um, Oh, I love that title. That's awesome. (laughs) No, it's big, but just having that, knowing that I can be in control if something like this happens, because again, two of the stuff that's happened to me this year has been emergencies. So things that I can't control, I can budget for, my birth um, as much as possible. I can plan for that. But the the ER visits, I couldn't plan for. So just knowing that I don't have to just take the first bill that comes, I can go in, I can advocate for myself. Um, I can write before I signed all the paperwork for the ER, I crossed out full charges and said I would pay up to two times Medicare. And that's what I signed. I refuse to sign something that says I will just pay whatever you're going to charge me. 
Um, but just having that knowledge, being empowered, makes it a little less scary that I'm just going to get hit with a big bill. Cassie, we got to have that podcast episode. I, I think <laughs> yeah. that that's that's an episode we should have. Is 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 what you should do to not pay the first bill. Tactics that you yes. can you can uh, employ to put yourself in a better position. Because I, look, that's useful knowledge regardless of whatever mm-hmm. whatever plan you're in. Um, uh, that 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 it's a business like any other in some respects and and a negotiation can occur. Let's table that because put that on the list. We're going to have Cassie (laughs) back to talk about that, among other Mm -hmm. things. But uh, Cassie, if people are interested in talking more about these forward thinking strategies and reference based pricing certainly is a disruptive forward thinking strategy that that, you know, we've witnessed save health plans significant dollars. I mean, significant dollars. Um, relative to traditional models. How can people get in contact with you? How can people get in contact with me? Yeah. So you can email me. <laughs> um, do you want me to get my email out? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Why not? <laughs> hey, right. so, we're yeah, I mean, you can absolutely <laughs> reach out. Yeah. Reach out to me if you have any questions. Um, my email is C S C H L A R B as in Bravo at onedigital.com. You can LinkedIn connect with me. I am always here. I'm happy to say answer questions. Again, I love talking about reference-based pricing. I get really excited about it because I do two-year purse guides just a business. And I think that we've had kind of this aura of mystery and we're just, you know, we're just subject to whatever the health insurance carriers and providers want to charge us. We have to pay it. We don't. Um, we absolutely and can stand up to it and, and make sure that we're paying the right amount. And I really believe that it's not I don't believe in punishing patients for things out of their control, which I feel like is what we're seeing in the system. It's not just employers, it's your members that feel it. So please reach out if you have any questions. Yeah. And also, you know, (laughs) feel free to reach out to your one digital consultant. If you're an enforced client, if you're if you're somebody who's not presently working with one digital, you got to get on the team. We know what we're doing. We got great people like Cassie on the team. And Cassie, thank you so much for the time. We are definitely going to be having you back. Yeah. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Cool. Well, this has been another episode of the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. Uh, This is Scott Wham signing off. Thanks a lot.